Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. I'm your host, Cindy Howes, and thanks for finding this podcast. Before we get into our guest today, very excited to have Travis Book of the infamous String Dusters on. Let's get a few things out of the way. First of all, have you signed up for Basic Folk's newsletter? If you haven't, you can find the link in our show notes to do so. Or you can go to basicfolk.com and sign up for the uh, newsletter there. There's like a red sign up for the newsletter button. You can also follow us on social media at Basic Folk Pod. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. You can also make a contribution to Basic Folk. We are a listener-supported podcast. Make your donation. You can go to the link in the show notes basicfolk.com slash donate. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can become a contributor there. It's at the Apple Podcast app. Very easy to do. Okay. Uh, Thank you very much if you are a contributor. Travis Book. After two decades in the infamous String Dusters, the Grammy Award-winning neo-bluegrass band, Travis Book releases his rock Americana debut, Love and Other Strange Emotions. That's not to say that Book, who thrives on collaboration, got here on his own. The Colorado musician, now residing in western North Carolina, was raised by parents who went out of their way to ensure that young Travis respected music and had access to instruments. His mother bought him his first bass guitar, and his dad allowed him to buy Red Hot Chili Peppers' Blood Sugar Sex Magic, even though it had a parental advisory sticker on the cover. As Travis went off to college in Durango, Colorado, he found a supportive and vibrant bluegrass scene where he encountered future members of Green Sky Bluegrass, that's Anders Beck, Leftover Salmon, Andy Thorne, and the John Stickley Trio. These musicians would form their first bluegrass band, Broke Mountain Bluegrass Band, which has just reissued a remastered version of their album Cabin in the Hills. In our conversation, Travis talks about his brief time in Nashville after he auditioned for the String Dusters and got the gig as their upright bass player and vocalist. Spoiler alert, he felt very intimidated in Nashville. We get into why he loves collaboration so much and has chosen to create his variety show turned podcast, The Travis Book Happy Hour, also on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network, into an engine for unique performances with guests like Lindsay Liu, Jim Lauderdale, Sierra Hull, and many more. The Happy Hour, which started in spring 2020, was first set without an audience, which made Travis let go of his attachment to their reaction using wisdom borrowed from Eastern philosophy. 
He also explains how he is romantic yet practical in everything he works to accomplish. Travis is a literal ray of positivity. So if you're having a bad day, I promise this conversation is going to lift you up in a seriously not cornball way. We'll take a listen to a song from his new solo album. Here's the song Reminds Me of You, and then we'll get to our conversation with Travis Book on Basic Folk. Travis Book, this is so rad. Thank you so much for joining me on Basic Folk. It's my honor. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. Heck yeah. All right. Let's start by talking about your reputation. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you didn't brief me on these questions and on your your line of questioning first. This is good. Yeah. You're going to really catch me off guard. Um, (laughs) I have no idea what my reputation is, so I'm I'm excited about this part of the show. You are notorious for being upbeat, positive, optimistic. From what I hear and what I know, you are a turns lemons into lemonade type. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, delusional is another way of looking at it. Um, right. That's I, funny. But great. That's great. Where does that side of you come from and how do you work to cultivate it? Oh, what a great question. I think um, I think it comes from my mother and that whole side of my family. And uh, again, it's a little bit, the way you put it is, is really like kind of the positive way of putting it, but also mm-hmm. the more sort of like the other side of that coin is that it is also, a, there are elements of like um, denial and delusion. And um, that would be sort of like the, the more negative side of that mm-hmm. optimistic perspective. Um but, you know, I, I, I think it comes from my mom. And uh, every day when I would leave for school, she would say, spread some cheer. She still tells me that every time I leave her house. And, um, but I have seen, I've seen it, you know, in, in my day-to-day life, I've, I've sort of uh, time and time again seen the power of taking a positive perspective on things and, and tackling things head on with an attitude that this is all going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. This is fine. Everything's fine. We're going to make this great. So uh, it's just sort of, it's become pretty deeply embedded in the way that I perceive, perceive the world. Mm. So how hard is it to bring that type of energy into your music without like crossing the line of delusional or shtick or corny or anything like that? Um, it's, it's a balancing act. And I know that there are times when it can be really annoying for my bandmates. Um, <laughs> you know, when I'm doing my own thing, when I'm in charge, 
whether it's like with, with the, with the podcast happy hour or the Tuesday nights that I cultivate every week. Um, it's, it's easy for that to just sort of be the, the attitude that everyone shares from the first time everyone gets together in the afternoon to work on the music. I think when, you know, when we're on the, when we're on the bus and it's like day 10 and everyone's kind of tired and we've had a couple shows that maybe weren't as well attended or, you know, for whatever reason, there's like a little bit of bleakness bleeding in. Um, it, it can be really annoying for my bandmates. Um, but it doesn't, I don't think it ever, I don't feel like it ever uh, really sort of devolves into the realm of, of shtick or being sort of disingenuous. Um, it okay. really is, I, I am almost always able to sort of just see the bright side. And also part of it too is just sur sort of a surrendering to the universe and mm -hmm. realizing that like, you know, yeah, you're going to be, in, you'll find yourself in some less than desirable situations that maybe you would not have chosen. However, like every moment is, is ripe with opportunity. And so if you just like, you know, the, it's, it's sort of like, and here we are, and where do we go from here kind of mentality. Um, mm -hmm. So you'd have to ask my bandmates when it devolves into shtick. But I think for the most <laughs> part, I think it's like a pretty legitimate way of approaching the world. Um, like, and here we are, and where do we go from here? That's awesome. So Travis, you're from Colorado. Is it Durango, Colorado you're originally from? I, w I was raised on the Front Range, like an hour south of Denver, a little town called Palmer Lake. But then I went to Durango sort of for my college years um, mm -hmm. and was there for about six years. And that was really pretty formative when it comes to uh, the music side of my life. Cool. Can we go back a little bit to like what music looked like in your house growing up? Like who was playing in your family? Who was listening? What were they listening to? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for asking. My So there was a lot of music going on. My dad was playing guitar every night. Like after I'd go to bed, I'd hear him playing guitar. And sometimes he and my mom would sing together. And then on Sundays, Cute. my dad, oh, it was, it was adorable. It was very like, um, <laughs> it was very, uh, what's that Christopher Guest folk, uh, folk? A Mighty uh, Wind. Yeah, it was very Mighty Wind, you know, um, and then on Sundays we were we were part of the Mennonite church community. It was really a, a chill yeah. version of it, but we're Mennonites, <laughs> and um, and we'd sing hymns, and and so you know, and and that was always my favorite part was like singing the different parts and learning to read music. So on Sundays we'd sing hymns, and then on Fridays and Saturdays my mom was part of this like local rock cover party band and she would play at bars and she would play weddings and that kind of thing. It was called Another Roadside Attraction, which is just a great name for a band from that Tom Robbins book. So, you know, the mu music was always in the house. My parents were always playing music. The turntable was like the sacred space in the house. And my dad mm -hmm. was always playing records for me and pointing out bass lines and pointing out cool stuff when we were driving around in the car. And then my mom doing these gigs every weekend, it made it really normal to be in a band and want to hang out with your friends That's and cool. make music. Was this, are we the same age? Was this like the 90s, early 90s? Yeah. Yeah. I was born in 81. I was 82. 81. All right. We're the same. Okay. We're essentially the same age. We're yeah. So the I was- Same age, the same person. 
I was coming up in the nineties and my dad has got this really, and he's still this way. He's, he considers himself like a little bit of a music critic and he very, um, he, he subscribes to all the music magazines and he's so like, he was turning me on to like Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and the Stones, right? We'd be listening to that, but he was also Uh like acutely interested with what was on the cutting edge also, you know, the, the, whatever was hitting the top of the billboard charts. So then, you know, like Pearl Jam, he was the first person mm-hmm. to turn me on to Pearl Jam. Um, he let me buy, you know, the Red, the Red Hot Chili Peppers record, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, even though it had explicit content. He let me buy that. And then, like, he was the first person who told me about Radiohead, you know? So my dad is always... Oh, that's cool. Yeah, he's, and he's always really interested in what's happening with new music. Um, you know, like, he's way into Mastodon. Like, I think he went and saw the band Mastodon. Um <laughs> so, so my, my dad helped really cultivate this idea that, that there's always really interesting music out there and there's always so much more to find. And he still turns me on to stuff. He's, he's really, he's really great like that. Man, sounds like a dynamic duo for your mom and your dad. Um, and it's cool that your dad got like, what a great, if you're going to let your son who is going to be a future bass player buy an explicit record what better record than the Red Hot Chili Peppers with like one of the best basses of all time. Yeah. Um, and I read, okay, so I read that before you were given a bass, you played a little piano, trumpet, guitar, your mom got you a bass. So what was the impetus for the bass and how did you first connect with that instrument? And part three of this question, I have a, I have a reputation for asking seven questions in one Sorry. It's okay. I'll How try to hold relate... it all in my mind. Great. How do you relate to that connection now? Okay. So the, the bass happened, um, just like most bass players get into playing bass. There was like a, a group of my, my best friends from church. One of them played guitar. One of them played drums. And we started getting together. This was in like middle school. We would go after church on Sundays. We would go to the drummer's house because that's where you go. Because you don't want to pack up the drum. Go to the drummer's house, right? And we, it's a big deal. We'd go down there and we would jam, and I would sing. Like singing was always my first and most natural instinct. But after about like our second or third rehearsal, we were like, "Well, we need someone to play bass." And so that's like the that's answer to part one is like I was I was already in opening. I was already in this (laughs) band, and we needed a bass, and then. And then, you know, so I just mentioned it to my mom and my mom, of course, being in a band, saw the writing on the wall. She was like, yeah, if you've got a bass, you'll always have gigs. So we went and bought like a white Epiphone bass with a little practice amp and I was off and running. And then, and then it very quickly, I I very quickly realized that I was already sort of naturally tuned into these things. Like I distinctly have a memory from elementary school when um, MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This was like a big deal. There were these two girls yep. who in the talent show, they like did like this dance to You Can't Touch This. And I'd sort of like barely heard the song. And when I was trying to explain it to my friends, the melodic hook that I was singing to them to describe the song was actually the bass line as opposed to like the lyrical melody right does that make sense so like yes. early on the bass lines were what was defining music for me you know mm-hmm. and then like i remember driving around with my dad 
and Led Zeppelin's Ramble On came on and he was like, listen to this bass line. Like this is a bass line. And so early on, it was, I was sort of naturally drawn to, um, to that fundamental part of the music, you know? And then I had a bass and I was like, that was it. I was basically off and running and I played, you know, played trombone until I got to high school, but then I didn't like the high school band teacher. So I quit all formal music and then was just jamming and playing, playing electric bass with my friends. You're also a bass player that sings lead vocals, Mm -hmm. just like Sting. Yeah. Um, (laughs) It's really rare, actually. So for us um, plebes out there who are not aware, could you talk about why that is so rare and how you approach to uh, being a bassist that sings? I don't. I don't know exactly why it's so rare. It can be very difficult to to play. Well, look, you know, playing bluegrass bass and singing is relatively straightforward because the notes are falling all in the downbeat. And it but when you get into playing something like something that's like funk or more syncopated, it becomes syncopated bass line like Getty Lee, like how he does that. I don't even no, um, it it it's very difficult. You you really almost have to have like two separate minds going on at oh, the yeah. same time to be carrying a melody line with your voice and supporting that with any kind of bass line that's that's more than just like a bluegrass bass line. That's just like boom 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 boom. You know, if you're playing stuff that's syncopated, it can get really 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 tricky. And the syncopated. Just for, again for the for the plebes, uh, it's like a very kind of busy. Uh, that's a negative way to put it, but like a very complex, complicated. Yeah, like the best example part. would be like um, like what James Jamerson plays on "What's Going On," which is like if the downbeat is like here, he's like that. Even though it's like a relatively simple baseline to play. And you get it under your fingers. Once you start trying to sing, then like, mother, mother, over top. Da, 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 da. It's like this syncopated, the syncopate, yeah. like the, the the melody line, all those are coming on like the offbeats. And then you're supposed to be playing this boom, ba, ba, dum, ba, dum, doo, 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 and having it like be like really groovy and really funky mm-hmm. while you're singing this thing that's totally different. Totally and different, so, yeah. Like doing those two things simultaneously is 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 complicated. Um, Mm -hmm. and, 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 and it's the same reason why a lot of, like, you'll have a lot of guys who, who sing and play guitar, but they're not like playing, you know, even Jerry Garcia wouldn't be playing like these, the signature lines and the riffs that he plays while he's singing. He's kind of like filling in between because to do those things simultaneously is just, is, it can be very complicated. It's like a, what do you, you pat your head and rub your belly? exactly like chewing two different gum. time signatures yeah yeah it's 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 very much like that and so that's why i think it's fairly rare um but mm-hmm. all it takes is just a little bit of dedication to the process and then getting your getting the way i the way i the analogy i use it's, it's almost like there's like it's like you're going back and forth between two images mm-hmm and yeah, you yeah. get you get you get to where you're going back and forth between them so quickly that they're both visible 
simultaneously. But the mind is kind of going, I'm checking in on the bass and hoping that, that the voice is carrying the melody. But then I'm checking back in with the voice because that's really where I want to be is tuned into what I'm singing. That's the most important thing. And then I'm hoping that the bass is carrying on yeah. without me. But I, but I have to continually check back in with the bass. Wow. Um, I'm exhausted. It's... it's yeah. I, again, I try, I try not to think about it too much because then it seems yeah. like way harder than it is. But there are certainly, there are things that I'm unable to play and sing at the same time. Um, mm. You know, and and with the exception of Getty Lee, I would assume that that's the, that's the case for almost any bass player, that there are real limits to what you can do on the yeah. bass while you're trying to sing. Getty Lee is an alien. He's so cool. <laughs> He's so cool. <laughs> he really set the bar high. And there'd be times where he'd also be playing keys. And bass with just his left hand, Stop it. and like hammering on with his bass and singing. <laughs> I mean, just like you say, he's an alien. So back in Colorado, you found this really great bluegrass scene and community, and from that scene, you formed a band called. Broke Mountain Bluegrass Band with guys who would come to be in Green Sky Bluegrass, Leftover Salmon, and John Stickley. And just recently, you reunited after 20 years, and the album Cabin in the Hills has been reissued and newly remastered. By the time this interview comes out, it'll the newly remastered edition will be out. So especially yeah. s- since you've been stretching out your sound so much recently, like what's it been like? to get back into this material, and of course the pictures you've been posting from 2003 after two decades. The haircuts, the gene, the gene cuts, the facial hair, the non-existent facial hair. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so interesting. I mean, just last night I played, um, I taped a happy hour episode with Andy Thorne, the banjo player, and Stickley was on guitar. So it was, it was like three fifths of that band playing music last night and a lot of stuff we were playing stuff that he like wrote in high school and stuff that was part of the broke mountain repertoire and then also playing stuff that he wrote now i you know this music is all just sort of on a it's all kind of on a continuum and sometimes what feels really old also can it's like it also feels really new at the same time so sort of like rediscovering this repertoire it's a little bit like getting in a time machine and also being like playing this music that we used to play together when we were first, like just beginning to learn how to play bluegrass in an mm, ensemble mm-hmm. to play it now after 20 years of playing, you know, a hundred shows a year in a bluegrass yeah. ensemble. I mean, I've played so many bars of bluegrass, right? I've played like so many like four beat bars of bluegrass that like Mm -hmm. my, I've really honed my technique and the way that I listen and the way that I understand the music, it's really, it's just like, it's so exciting to get to like, to almost like have a second chance at playing all this music with this really killer ensemble. We were, we were pretty good then, but now we're like much better. Um, And Mm -hmm. it's, it's awesome. It's like one part time machine, but then it's also, there's like all this potential for us to make new music and for the old to sound new and to bring all that we've learned. And, and we, and I still feel young, but I was like really young then, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, it's awesome. It's really, 
I can't wait for us to do some shows. We've got a few shows in the next year, and um, it's a trip. It's it's really unusual. It's like a it's like a reverse super band. You know, you'll see people take like <laughs> they're like, hey, we're gonna take members from all these bands, and we're gonna make a band out of it. And instead, we were like. We're going to take this band and we're going to make a bunch of bands out of it. <laughs> we're going to reverse engineer exactly. this band. It's That's pretty cool. unique, I think, the situation we find ourselves in. Man, I feel like talking to you, Travis, I'm going to have a really good rest of my day because you're just like very upbeat. I'm there. I'm in it. <laughs> Let's keep going. I'm glad we're doing this in the morning then. That's great. <laughs> I know. Seriously. Um, so you were invited to audition for the infamous String Dusters in 2003. You got the job. Congrats. Um, you didn't want to leave Colorado, but you thought you'd try it out for a year. 20 yeah. years on, you're still in it. Yeah. But what was it like for you to first take this leap into the Dusters, leave your home, your community, and your band? Part two of this question, what kept you around? It was really... I was incredibly intimidated and I felt intimidated the entire time I lived in Nashville. Um, mm. I can't I'm, imagine why. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm so grateful that I was able to spend that time there and do that time in Nashville. But, you know, thank God I got out of there because I don't, I know that I never would have, I mean, the way that my, the way that things have unfolded for me, it feels kind of perfect in hindsight, but it was very, it was kind of heartbreaking to leave Colorado because so much of my identity and so much of my routine was tied up in being there, being in the mountains, um, being at high elevation, skiing all mm. winter, um, mm -hmm. you know, playing a gig and then going and sitting in hot springs, you know, it's like, it was, we were sort of, it was like, sort of like being like a hippie in a bluegrass band was just like the best lifestyle, <laughs> you know, it didn't pay anything. Um, yeah. And, and, and I needed, I needed everything that's come from then until now to become who I am now. And I wouldn't trade any, any of it, but man, like I went to Nashville to play with the string dusters thinking, this is going to be fine because if I need to turn around and come back, I, I can pick up right where I left off. I can get my job mm -hmm. back at the ski shop. I can get my job back teaching snowboarding. I can start another band and play weddings and play around Colorado. Like I can pick up right where I left off if this doesn't work out. Um, mm -hmm. And and there were times in the first decade where even once I'd left Nashville where I would stand back from the dusters and I would look at it and I would be like, I don't know if I can swing this. For whatever reason, hmm. the lifestyle, uh, the the challenge, the musical challenges, uh, all the insecurities that come with comparing yourself to other people, uh, comparing yourself to your bandmates, yeah. confronting your own shortcomings as a musician. I mean, it it's been a wild twenty years. Um, coming into a place where I feel like I've finally getting a grasp on what it is that I do well and coming to some sense of peace with all the things that I don't. Mm -hmm. um, mm. That's sort of like the, that's not the question you answered, but that's the question you asked, but that's the answer you got. 
And I appreciate it. I got to say that I went to Lake Tahoe one time and I was like, I could I could live out here and work at a sandwich shop and yeah. you know, go hiking and skiing all the time. This seems great. I think about it from time to time. Yeah, I mean, you you still can. And it's it's kind of <laughs> it's got to be like isn't it like partly like a little bit reassuring to know that it's out there? backup plan it's we're gonna be like hey babe get my wife we're going to lake tahoe i'm gonna make burritos this is our life we're going all in i've got friends in tahoe if you decide to go they'll they'll help you they'll help you get established all right that's good good news so one theme i noticed in my research about you is that you never seem to have a plan like projects plans and ideas solidify for you in real time do you see that in yourself and how has that lack of a plan worked or not worked out for you? That's interesting. I think, I think that I actually do have a plan, but what I also have... Not according to my research. I, I, I think maybe what your research is pointing to is that I am not... Maybe less than a plan is I sort of set a trajectory, but then I know mm. every, every moment I need to be open to what is presenting itself, right? So mm-hmm. I, I sort of set, set intentions and have ideas about ways that things can go, places that I might like to find myself. But then as new information presents itself, things are changing all the way down to the moment that things are coming into form and actually happening. Um, and it's, it, it, it's a way of keeping things really exciting and and making sure that I'm not rigidly following some idea about how things mm. could be. Um, cool. <laughs> I think maybe that's because if you'd ask my if you ask my partner, she would be like, "Oh, he you know he's a he's a planner, you know." Like I'm already looking at the calendar. I mean, and part of it is by by the nature of 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 the work I do, I have, I have to like book gigs like six to 12 months in advance to get, you know, to, if I want to be at Telluride Bluegrass Festival in June of next year, well, then I have, we have to have that conversation with them in August of Mm -hmm. this year. So there is an element of, of looking forward and trying to fit all the pieces together because there's so much that I want to do. On the other hand, there. I also know that even while I'm on my way driving to Telluride, there are going to be new possibilities unfolding for what's going to happen on that day, whether we're going to stop somewhere, maybe there's people we're going to sit in that that I'm going to sit in with or people that are going to sit in with me, or maybe another artist can't make it and there's an opportunity to jump in and play a set and fill in. I mean, there's, it's like, it's all on this, there's, there's a spectrum you know, where I'm planning ahead, but I'm also like the, the, the best, the best stuff is, is like right here and capturing, making today the best it can be. It's essential to be almost like, almost like it's like, there's a plan, but I'm almost still formless and allowing Mm. it to unfold in real time. So this next one is like a pretty heady question, um, mm. and I found it, I, I came to it because of this quote that I, I found from you. Um, it's kind of long. 
You said, I write songs to help me process and understand what I'm experiencing. It's therapy, fleshing these things out, getting them out of the realm of inner monologues so I can hold them in my hands, turn them over, look at them, and marvel at their strangeness, which is a beautiful quote. Um, could you put into words like the process, like what it's like for you to start with a feeling you're experiencing to the point where you're actually like holding it in your hands? Like how long do you sit with it after it's in your hands? And do you see this process changing the way you react to your life? Wow. There's, there's a lot to unpack with that question. Um, you know, that quote was was sort of specifically in reference to song creation. But that concept, something that I've learned about myself is that when ideas or feelings, emotions, even experiences that have happened, when they are, when I'm only processing them like inside of my own mind, um, it's, what's the right way to put this? Like, it's like, I, I know I'm never gonna, I can never really get to the next place with them. And I get kind of stuck in like a mind loop, especially if mm. it's like doubt or insecurity or jealousy or fear. And, you know, th and those are all like sort of like emotional states because mm -hmm. this stuff comes up and then it's, it's, it's very confusing to me when it's sort of left in the realm of inner monologue. And it can be challenging to be in a relationship with me either friendship or, or, you know, my partner will tell you, my ex-wife will definitely tell you like it, it, because what I need to, if I'm thinking about these things, a lot of times I need to bring them out. I need to either like write them out or articulate them, say them so that I can really get detached from them and look and look at them. And be like, oh, okay, well, that's absurd. Or mm. what I'm really, what I thought I was feeling is actually this. Or, mm -hmm. or wow, man, it feels good to get that out. And now I can let that go because that's not real. But when it's stuck mm. inside, you know, if I've got an issue or I've got a problem or I'm feeling something, ruminating on it in my own mind is like the, that's the worst and it's, and it's endless and there is no end game with that. But once I bring these things out and again, so like if I'm having like a hang up with my partner, this is like why it was like why, why a therapist is like ideal for someone like me or, or while just like having a really good friend that I go on bike rides with and we, and I can just talk some of this stuff out. And once I get it out, then I can let it go. And that's what happens mm -hmm. a lot with, um, with songwriting for me is that, is that there are these things and by and large, the stuff that's going on in my mind, um, thoughts, emotions, none of that stuff is real and none of that stuff is even me. And, or at least not in any sense that, not in any way that's important for me to hold on to in terms of constructing my identity and my own reality. I want these thoughts and emotions, these things that come up in my mind, I just kind of want them to go away so I can get back to being empty and available and present, right? But, mm -hmm. you know, I get caught up there. So I have to be careful, like talking this stuff out with my partner. Like once you bring it up to, to my partner, well, then it's, 
it's part of our, like, she can't forget these things I say, even though they're, once I've gotten them out and I process them, they cease to have any connection to reality. Mm. Does yeah, that make and sense? If she's, yeah, if she's an empath, she's going to absorb it, and but you're going to oh, yeah. be like, no, no, we're done. We're done with that. Yeah, the, no, 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 that's not actually how I felt. That's like, that That wasn't real. It just, I was feeling it and I needed to get it out. So like, that's something I've learned about myself. Songwriting is a way to do it. Journaling is a way mm-hmm. to do it. Talking with my friends. Mm-hmm. When I saw my therapist, that's what we would work on a lot is me just like bringing this stuff into form. Once I spit it out and I can look at it, I'm like, oh yeah, that's absurd. And then I can put it, <laughs> and then I can let it go. And I can go back to being like quiet and empty because... Almost nothing that's going on in my head is really worth anything I'm finding. It's not real and it doesn't usually serve me. Hmm. So in the String Dusters, musical growth, evolution and exploration has always been a main goal. And you've managed to cultivate an audience that wants to hear music that's endlessly challenging and surprising. And as a radio programmer, I know that a majority of human being listeners want what's safe, want what's predictable. How do you relate to both of those types of music listeners and what's it like to have the former of the two as your fan base? I mean, that, yeah, that, that is the question. How, how, how do you relate? How do you make music that works on both levels? Hmm. And, and that's something that, that the dusters have wrestled with. I think initially when we started, we kind of really, we really wanted our music to be um, like a little more complicated and more interesting. And then we found we're like, well, but we want people to hear our music, you know, like we want to get played on the radio. We want our music to be part of people's lives. And sometimes music that's a little easier to eat is it resonates a little better you know and 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 i kind of i consider myself to be kind of i probably write like the simplest and most basic music um in the band and that's Mm. not because i'm trying to get commercial success i just part of it is also just like an an it's like economics of ideas there's only so many cool things that i'm gonna think of and once i latch on to something if i've got a hook then like it's i feel like it's okay for that to be to be the hook. And I may not need a ton of other stuff. A bunch of other stuff around it may just serve to like entertain myself, but is it going to really drive home the point of whatever it is that's important about what I'm trying to say Hmm. musically or lyrically? Um, You know, the, 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 the string dusters with, with it being, a string band that doesn't just play straight ahead bluegrass and with us having essentially four singers and five songwriters, it seems to me to be a very difficult band to be a fan of. And it's really hard to convert people to fans of the string dusters, because if there's some element of it that you really like, you're probably not going to get that much of it through the course of a show, right? If you're there, Mm. To hear Andy Falco sing, well, he's probably only going to sing three songs. And he's only going to have three songs on the record. You know, if you're, if you really, and then there's all these other elements too. If there's anything that you don't particularly like, you're going to get a lot of that too, you know? Um, and, and so it, the band 
demands uh, a somewhat, I don't want to say so- sophisticated listener, but someone who you you, you kind of have to have a pretty wide range of tastes and enjoy a wide range of aesthetic in the string band realm to be able to have to, to for us to keep your attention because yeah. unlike some of our peers who have like one main lead singer and one kind of sound uh-huh. we've ours we're kind of all over the place and that's a strength of ours it's just it is who it is but i don't know that over the course of our career i sometimes i wonder if we would have been more successful if our sound was a little bit more streamlined You host a show. You host a live show, a variety show that has been turned into into a podcast. It's called the Travis Book Happy Hour. It debuted in the spring of 2020 with your longtime collaborator and former spouse, the great Sarah Siskind. Yeah. Um, you have a trio house band um, that perform with special guests, like fronting the band. Um, special guests like Lindsay Lou, Jim Lauderdale, Andy Falco, Rachel Bayman. Um, the show is recorded live with an audience at the Great Eagle in Asheville, North Carolina. Why did you want to create collaboration in this kind of environment? I really want to focus on collaboration here in this in this question. And like, what have you found surprising in this particular type of collaboration? Mm. Yeah, it the collaboration element. I mean, there's there's like. <laughs> Playing with other musicians and 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 putting myself in a role of of backing up other musicians, it it hits on a lot of levels. You know, from an artistic standpoint, it's infinitely challenging, and um, and it also allows me to sort of make my own. I I become sort of um, it's it it really works on on like a on like a service level where I feel like I can just focus on serving the music and I can let go of, of, of all of this ego related stuff with trying to get my own thing across my own sound mm-hmm. me. Oh, I, like I'm going to sing, I'm going to turn people on to me. And it created when I was, and then I, and then I sort of found also from like more of like the, the practical business side of things um, which is a little bit less sexy, but so important when it comes to making things viable and sustainable. That if I was in a situation where, you know, if you do, if I'm doing a regular show and it's just me every time, um, then the entire impetus is on is on me to be the draw and for me to kind of mix things up. But by by by, there's. By sort of flipping the script, where you know I'm the I'm the anchor, and every Tuesday I play, and we've moved the show from the Gray Eagle to this home venue, 185 King Street in Brevard. Every Tuesday I play, but every week is different, and it's not different because I'm fronting a different band. Although there is that, I front like six different ensembles of different musical styles, where I'm kind of the main focus. We rotate that through over the course of a year, but also. There, we have the capacity, any musician, anybody at all that I come across can come and they're the feature. They confront 
they can sort of front the show or I can help them kind of lead the, the charge and we can build an ensemble around them. And so the, the happy hour, which is like the, inter, which is like the interview version of that show that happens like once a month or mm -hmm. just Travis book and friends, which is happening every week that I'm off the road. Every time it has a really different, um, a really different flavor. And so, and, and, and it's built in because all I have to do is ask Rachel Bayman to come. And once she agrees to come, well, then the nature of the show reveals itself. Like, what is the mm -hmm. best part of it's like question I ask myself, well, what's the best way for us, for me to support this person's music? But then also like, Rachel, what do you want to do? Knowing that you have some limitations, I have to be in your band. I'm going to play bass yeah. and I'm going to sing yeah. with you. But other than that, we could do anything. Do you want, do you want drums? Do you want to go electric? We've got incredible drummers here in Brevard. You know, Jeff Seipel come down and play with us anytime. Mike Ashworth from the Steeps is a genius drummer. Or do you want to do more of an old time ensemble? Do you have someone that wants to come and play with you? Do you want me to find a fiddle player? You know, and, and we can build these bands and then the audience shows up and they know that it's like, they know that we just got together that afternoon to work on this music and there's this real freshness. It probably was, it could have been the first time that I even met that person that afternoon. And they know that they can trust me to have, to, to curate a night of music that's gonna be interesting and compelling, um, but also of, of quality, you know? Mm. And, and, the collaboration part of that, it, it, it's, it serves to keep things really fresh, but also for me personally, it has just it completely exploded my musical world where before 2020, all I did was play in the string dusters. All I did was play bass in like a bluegrass jam grass band. And that mm -hmm. role I realize now was so limiting and so mm. small and I love it. And I'm really, I've gotten really, feel like I'm really good at being the bass player and a singer in the string dusters. I got that dialed in, but like backing up Jim Lauderdale on electric bass with a drummer and a pedal steel or fronting my own like fifties style country Western swing band or playing like old time style bass, but dealing with these like pop elements with Rachel Bayman or like doing Jerry Garcia stuff in a duo with Andy Falco, mm -hmm. um, getting to be Tim O'Brien's bass player and playing all that music that I've known for so long. I mean, these, I just, it's, fucking cool. it's, it's the, I'm like, I'm like, I am the luckiest. I'm the, I just, I'm so fortunate. And, 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 and there is no, like, I've got this guy who comes to all the shows, you know, he comes down from Asheville. He drives an hour each way to come every Tuesday. I love that guy. He's, that, <laughs> that guy's the best. You need that guy. And he said, yep. he said last night, he said, man, he's like, it's so great to see my favorite bass player play in my favorite band. And what he meant by that was, and I said, I said, I know why it's your favorite band. I said, because everyone is in it. And everyone will eventually be in it. And that's kind of my, the attitude I'm taking is that the only limitation really is, is the limits of my own relationships, 
limits of people's tour schedule and the amount of money that I can pay people. You know, some people need more money than I can possibly make on a Tuesday at this little venue. But outside of those limitations, I'd like to say everybody is going to eventually play in my band, Travis Book and Friends. And there's no reason why they can't, because between myself and and the musicians that I have access to in Brevard and Asheville, we can basically play anything. And it's really awesome. And that's that's how my solo record came to be, is that I just decided one day, I was like, maybe I'll play some electric guitar with my friends and I'll sing my songs and they can learn them. So Sipe, Jeff Sipe on the drums, you know, probably one of the five greatest living drummers. He lives just down the street and he says yes whenever I ask him. Mike Ashworth is a devastating bass player and the two of them have been playing together in a rhythm section for the last 15 years. And then, you know, and I have my buddy Tommy come play lap steel and we're playing this music and it's like, okay, maybe we're on to something here. And then a couple of the fans mm-hmm. were like, hey, you got to make a record out of this. And then pretty soon here I am, I'm in the studio with a full rock band. I've added keys, I've added electric lead guitar and I'm making like an Americana rock record. Never mm-hmm. would have thought that I would do that. Yeah. And that never would have happened if it weren't for this spirit of collaboration because I can learn so much and I learn so much every week from you know I mean even if I lived in Nashville and was like hung out my shingle as like a side guy I would never get to play with as many people I probably played with 200 musicians in the last three years Wow, it's insane and I'm so fortunate for it and I'm experiencing so much growth and it also reinvigorates my dedication to the to the string dusters because because I can really be so essentially what I need to be in that band without having to get anything else out of it other than what it is. Because all mm. these other musical needs are being met outside of that band. I did not know what I was in for with that question. Sorry, I, I think like... I talked for like 20 minutes right there. Man, I went into a trance. Great. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I just have, I want to like back up a little bit and I have one more question before we get into this record Yeah. about um, the Travis book, Happy Hour. Okay, so this is kind of um, a weird setup. Um, so you were talking about your attachment to the audience, and the happy hour started without an audience during the pandemic, so you had to learn to live without it. Mm-hmm. And the thing that interested me about this was like your approach to letting go of that attachment. Here's a quote from you. You said, it's this real-world way or Eastern perspective to act out. You have a trajectory, but then you let go of the outcome. You work towards a goal, but the goal isn't the thing. The process is the thing. Cool. All right, here's the curveball question <laughs> after that setup. Can you get into more about that Eastern perspective, maybe how that impacts your approach to life, approaches your spirituality? Yeah. Yeah, I can try. That's the best I can do is I can try. I think there so in 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 trying to understand how to move through the world, how to live and how to be satisfied in the moment. How to just feel okay with whatever is. That process led me to checking out some more sort of Eastern philosophy and Eastern religion. Um, checking out um, elements of, of, of 
of Buddhism and and then and and also you know like listening to a bunch of Ram Das because he's like really entertaining and it's pretty far out stuff and really fun and it also incorporates a lot of um, the the realizations that I had and gained early on through um, exploration and experimentation with with psychedelics and the way that that sort of reordered a lot of preconceptions that I'd had as, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, programming I'd gotten, realizing that things maybe weren't how they seemed. And the whole, I feel like sort of like the whole, I kind of have come to think that maybe the whole game boils down to how unbothered can I be? Right. Because suffering, and I use that in sort of the Eastern sense of the word suffering, it it comes from like agitation and wishing that things were different. Um, And so I sort of, and, and look, the, the, the journey and the, and the increasing awareness, it never ends, but it seems to me at this point, that seems like maybe the simplest way that I can boil this whole thing down of how, how I'm trying to live my life and what the point is, is to see how unbothered I can possibly be. Because that's mm-hmm. when, that's when I know that like, th- that it's got me and that I'm not like, that's when I'm losing is when I'm like agitated, whether it's with my kids, you know, and that's totally like the kids is the best place to practice this, right? Like how, how, how calm and centered can I stay while my kids are driving me absolutely crazy, you know, and when, and when they've got me and when I'm way off balance, it's, it's funny to watch myself and to see how, how, how bothered I am. Right. Cause I know I'm completely losing at the game. So I'm kind of off on a tangent here, but that, I like it. that, that, it seems to me it may be that simple that that's really the game is like, how unbothered can I be? And so the way that this relates to creation and performance is that, you know, one of the ways that you can get bothered, agitated, when, when, when making music and performing it in front of people is when you have an attachment to the way that people are really it's it's like uh, when i'm attached to my perception of how people are perceiving it right cuz i don't i don't know what it's like to be in the audience but i but you're looking out there yeah and you know yeah. and i've learned a lot with my bandmates because you know you get off stage and one guy's experience was completely different than another one guy's like yeah man that audience was digging it and another guy's like are you kidding me they were sitting there with their teeth yeah. in their mouth right yeah so that is one of the ways that start, sort of started to illuminate. It's like, okay, well, obviously the experience that we're having on stage is, is subjective. And the experience that the audience is having is subjective. And while as a performer and an entertainer on one level, you, you are trying to exert control over the situation and, and the best entertainers are able to bring the audience along with them and make it mm-hmm. happen. They make it happen. No matter what, they make it happen. But mm-hmm. I, I am not the best entertainer. And there are times when I cannot make it happen for the audience. And I realized 
well, okay, well, what do I have control over here? And surrendering the need for the audience to dig what's going on is really liberating. And when that works, it actually is like, it, it'll like, it'll like, it kind of flips the script and it creates the space for people to dig when I'm not like trying to put something like you can feel when you're in an audience, you can feel when someone's trying to like pull, pull one over on you in a sense. Right. Oh. And there's, there's, yeah. this, there's this awesome quote. Uh, it's exhausting. Right. It, it just doesn't feel good for anybody. And there was this amazing quote. My friend, Julie Lee was really nervous. She was about to go on stage at the station Inn, and she was backstage with the great Connie Smith, country music legend. And Connie was like, what's bothering you, honey? She goes, oh, I just, I'm just worried they're not going to like me. What if they don't like it? And Connie goes, oh, sweetheart, it's not their job to love you. It's your job to love on them. Mm. And I think about that a lot that, yeah, you know, and I'll, and I'll, I'll even think before I go on stage, I'll even like when I'm doing like a little meditation and mantra, it's like, allow me to be whatever the audience needs me to be whether they need mm. to love me, objectify me, whether they want to hate me, whatever projective system they need in that moment because they don't really they don't really know me and I'm just I'm just doing this thing and it's like a role I'm playing. I'm just going out there to just do this thing and whatever they need it to be, again, whatever they need. Love me, hate me, whatever they need in the moment allow me, I'm sort of like asking whatever it is, myself, <laughs> God, whatever, I don't even know who I'm talking to, but I'm just like asking the universe, like, allow me to be this space. And part of that is sort of a non-attachment to the outcome, because the whole experience is so subjective from both sides, that if I am attached to them loving me or thinking I'm great, if I'm worried about them thinking I'm good at bass, liking my voice, any of these things, well, then if I have any perception that they're not, then I'm going to be bothered and I'm going to be agitated and I will have mm. lost the game that I'm playing that night. Can you imagine if the audience had this like had this thought of like before they go to the show, they're like, "Man, I hope Travis really. I hope Travis likes me." <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so nervous. He's not gonna like me. He's not gonna like my claps and my whistles. <laughs> oh my god! I mean, yeah. Like, what? What? What are we thinking when we're going to a show? I mean, I assume like. We just, when I go to a show, I just like, I just want so desperately for the band to be their best and to be at their best. Mm. And mm. I want to love them so much. And then when I don't, it can be a real letdown. You know, when, you, mm. when you're watching a band and you can see that the dynamic is not good between them, when the vibe is not right, when they're uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I mean, nothing's worse than watching somebody who's not comfortable on stage. Ooh, God. I, I do just... have to say, can I, I do have to interject here as like, I feel like you and I have gone to thousands of live shows 
And so we can have this, and especially you, Travis, as a musician, you can see a band on stage and be like, oh, these guys are having an off night. This is not going well for them. I feel like people, like normal music fans um, who go to a concert and that might be happening, they might be like, what's wrong with me that I can't get into this? Like, I don't find this to be very good and it's something to do with me. <laughs> well, on one level, okay, that's that's a funny that's a funny point because I'll make that argument for not like sometimes I'll say like all right, like so for example, like if you're not into Taylor Swift, is that on Taylor or is that on you? Like if I don't like a type of yeah. music, is that just is that just my own personal limitations of perception? Mm-hmm. Yes. No, I don't know. <laughs> and and furthermore, you know, there is no accounting for taste. And when it comes to totally. um, art and enjoying art, they're like, you know, like jo- Weisberger had this great, John Weisberger had this great quote when I interviewed him. He said, you know, I was, I wrote, I wrote reviews of records for years. And he said, I realized early on, it was not my job to tell people whether something was good or not. It was my job mm-hmm. to describe it so that yeah. they could decide if maybe it was something that they thought they might like or might not. And right. anytime you have a music critic that's trying to tell you whether something is good or not, what you have is someone who has misunderstood their role. And that's why mm. music critics get a deservedly bad rap. Because if you think your opinion of art matters... You're wrong. <laughs> You're just wrong because your opinion doesn't matter. It's just made up stuff. You just made up some stuff about a thing <laughs> and it's not real. You know, um, the best thing that we can do is, is all be out there making things from a real pure and genuine perspective, like, like this podcast. Whether people think it's good or not is completely irrelevant. What's important is that you're creating something that you believe in and that you're asking questions that are that genuinely interest you and that you're interviewing people that are genuinely interesting to you and whether or not people you know what those reviews on the on Apple Music Apple Podcasts what what those reviews say about you good or bad are com- kind of completely irrelevant even though mm. it's really hard to maintain that perspective and look I need more reviews for my podcast so that more people will listen to it. And I want them to be positive, but none of that stuff is real. You know, what's important is that the art and the creation come from a genuine place of somebody doing their mm-hmm. best to help make sense of the world. And that's the be- the best music is that. People just, if you're trying to, you just, you just make the best music you can, make it sound the way you want it to sound, sing about the things you want to sing about, but music is neither good or nor, nor bad. It just it just merely is. Hmm. All right. Let me ask a question about this new album. Okay. And then we'll call it a day. That was amazing, by the way. <laughs> Great. Um, so the new album, the new Travis Book album, Love and Other Strange, Strange Emotions, is out now. It is the first time ever that you and your vision are the sole voice on this record. And when working on the vision for the album, you asked yourself, if you could do whatever you wanted, what would it be? And one thing, the thing that 
I want to ask you about that you came up with. You say, I follow my heart and my instincts with very little compromise. I do it for the love, the challenge, and as an offering to myself and the universe, which I love this and it totally lines up with what we were just talking about. It's very romantic and not very practical. <laughs> um, <laughs> do uh, you consider yourself a romantic and how often do you follow your heart? I am absolutely a a romantic. I th I think that the older I get, the easier it gets to follow my heart. And part mm. of that also is that I have enough irons in the fire and I have enough ideas about things I can do and I have enough faith in myself and in the unfolding that I don't have to f be as concerned about whether things will be commercially viable. I have a really low overhead. I live really simply. And if I had to live in my little 1600 square foot ranch in Brevard, North Carolina on $3,000 a month for the rest of my life, I could do that. And that freedom allows me the luxury of being a, a romantic and being able to say, to do kind of what I want and to, and to try to make music and play with people and do things that are, um, that are beautiful and not practical. And I'm, I'm also a, I am also a very practical and I'm a, I'm a total pragmatist. I, I'm not an ideologue. Ideas, ideas and, and ideals to me hold very little sway. I think being practical and pragmatic is a very easy and simple way to order one's life. But in that, I am, I am every day more fixated on sort of the pursuit of things, experiences, and, and, and being, finding myself in places that are beautiful. And beauty is really, I mean, I've never really thought about it this way. I'm sort of processing this in real time, but that is, that is everything to me and having these and 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 life for me is having these moments and it boils down to little moments where you realize how beautiful everything is right like um whether it's like walking on a stage and seeing an audience and seeing how perfect and beautiful they are in the moment or even just like looking across the street my mom lives across the street and the, the, the trees right now, like the leaves are perfectly peaking and I'll walk, be walking through my house and I'll look over and I'll see it and I'll just be like, Oh my God. And when I listen to music, like I listen to Andrew Marlin and watch house all the time because there's nothing more beautiful than that. And that is every, every day. I'm like a, I'm like a, practical romantic <laughs> and I just want I to, to that. I just want to make things that are beautiful and I want to experience moments that are I want to experience moments of, of blinding beauty and I ideally want to share that with people although that part of things is not I don't really have control over that I don't have control over whether people see the things that I do as beautiful but I try to make 
things that are that are beautiful and that are that are made with like a purity of intention and that's kind of a high ideal but it's also just a very pragmatic and practical approach to trying to live a life that is unbothered and that is karmically as clean as possible so that when I lay my head down at night the brain shuts off and I feel good about the way I conducted myself and I go right to sleep. I sleep very well at night. <laughs> Hell yeah. Man. Uh, Travis, this has been fun. Before we go, yeah. will you do the lightning round? Oh, awesome. I love, okay. I love lightning round. Here we round. go. Travis Book, what was the first song you learned on the guitar? Um, probably Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd. That tracks. Yeah. <laughs> what is your favorite Colorado treat? Uh, green chili. What is your favorite Western North Carolina treat? Um, either pimento cheese or barbecue. <laughs> pimento cheese. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's more of like a South Carolina thing, but, um, you know, the line is pretty blurry over here. Yeah. <laughs> this is an important question. What is your favorite chord? Um, yeah. you know what I really like is I like an E, but I like it um, capo four out of like a C position. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Next question. What was the first album you bought with your own money? Uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Oh, hell yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right, Mr. Collaborator. What is your dream collaboration? Oh man, I mean I, I would I really want to play with uh with Madison Cunningham. Ah. But I feel seems, like seems within reach. I feel like that's probably like punching a little bit above my weight cuz she is just Ooh. so awesome, but I think more than anyone I would love to play with her. I really hope to play with Daryl Scott as well. All right. <laughs> I feel like I feel like those are both within reach. You know, uh, well, you know, like, you know, I'm 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 a practical person, you know. Practical romantic. Yeah, it's like it's like if you've got like a, this isn't lightning round, but you know how like some couples have that I don't know, I can't remember what it's called like that that one person that you could cheat with, you know. If you're smart, you make it like someone Your hall that you, pass. Exactly, you make it someone that like you might run into. <laughs> So that's why, you know, you're like, who's your dream collaboration? Well, I, I'm trying to manifest playing with Madison Cunningham. So I'm going to put that out there in the universe. Awesome. This is the last question. Okay. Where's Where's the most beautiful place in the world? Um, my, back, my backyard, Brevard, North Carolina, watching the sunrise over Rich Mountain. This is it. This is the most beautiful place in the world. What a cornball. <laughs> Hey, I mean, I, you know, uh, the the only other place I would maybe consider is like is like on top of like Mount Sneffels outside of Ridgeway, Colorado. That's another stunning place. But I really love it right here in my backyard. Great. Travis Book, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been very fun to talk to you. Thank you. This has been awesome. I'm so glad it worked out. Appreciate your time. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton composes our music. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there, wherever you get podcasts. 
You can also find us on the SiriusXM app by searching for Basic Folk, or you can check out our website, basicfolk.com. If you enjoyed this episode, you can share it with a friend or a family member or an enemy or someone you haven't spoken to in a really long time, like your friend that you've known since preschool who you've seen maybe five or six times over the last several decades, but you know that they like jam grass, so they're going to like this conversation with Travis Book. Send it to that friend. Okay. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. You're so important, special, and you look great today. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.